0: Hello, welcome back to Out of Curiosity. This is our podcast where we are seeking biblical clarity for modern questions. I am Garland. And I'm Nick. And on this episode, what we're gonna be doing is continuing our conversation that we've been having uh, about women and their role in leadership in the church and in their roles in the house. And uh, if you haven't listened to our previous episodes on this one, episode 20 was just titled What Have We Gotten Wrong? Uh, in the women in leadership debate. And then we had one on marriage and the family, episode 21. And we continue that conversation uh, right here. Just wanted to dive into and look at all of the passages that we can wrap our arms around in the New Testament and try to make sense of them. And we, we feel like it is necessary for us as followers of Jesus to do the spade work, to get down into these passages and make sense of them and not just say stuff kind of off the hip. And so with that in mind, we're going to try to cover all of them. (laughs) Right, Nick? Is that what we're doing? Uh, Yeah. So we're going to look at all of them and and as many as we can get to. And and in light of that, this one, this episode probably will be a little bit longer. You can break it up into segments or listen to it all at once. Let me encourage you if you listen to this, uh, this would be a great one to listen to with a Bible out and a pen and a notebook. And we want to, we want to further this conversation. um, And we might not get every particular thing answered, but uh, here we go. You ready? Uh yeah I'm ready here we go, okay so when we when we look at the New Testament
1: and uh, and just what the New Testament has to say about women in leadership we really have two different kinds of passage that we're going to look at. Um, one are the narratives where we actually see the church, the ministry of Jesus in the early church, and we see what women were in fact doing in ministry according to the story, and then we have um the letters that are written to the church. That are written to
0: explain
1: or instruct on how the church should be
0: structured, and those should be read differently.
1: Yeah, they okay. should be read differently, mainly because when you get narrative, um, you're being you're being told this is what happened. And so um, you, you don't always know what is normative, or I could say another way, is this what should always happen? Is this how it happened in this situation? Um, And so hopefully the letters help explain, bring some context to what happens in the story. Okay. That doesn't mean the story isn't uh, important. In fact, it should be instructive. Uh, When what we see happening is a a standard, a norm by which we should live, but the letters are also going to bring clarity to that. Okay. So what are we starting with? All right, so we're going to start with the life of Jesus himself. Okay,
0: great place um, to start. Yeah, it's, yeah. A good,
1: it's a good place to begin. Uh, so we're going to say that everything that the New Testament uh, church does is going to come out of the ministry of Jesus. So um, we're trying to get a feel for who is given leadership and what the role of men and women are in leadership. So at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he is going to call to himself 12 people to be his disciples, he'll call them apostles, they're the ones he's going to send out. And we should observe right out of the gate that he chooses 12 men. Okay, And this is in keeping with a pattern in, in the Old Testament of, of men in, in many of these significant leadership roles. And so Jesus chooses 12 men um, to, to come live life with him, and he will commission them to be his witnesses, his representatives um, at the end of his life. So these 12 men are kind of his band of followers uh, that he is equipping for leadership. Now, what do we make of the fact that Jesus chose 12 men? Right. This is where already early on we're going to get some divergence in how to interpret that. Um Many complementarian, I'm going to use the terms complementarian, egalitarian. The, the terms aren't that important, but but here's what they come to mean. Uh, a complementarian position is the position that men and women have different leadership roles in the church. Okay, So they complement each other. Okay, And the complementarian position would say that certain leadership roles are reserved for men. The egalitarian position is that um, gender is not the basis for leadership in the church. And so... All leadership teaching positions are equally open to men and women. They always use a big word. They always use yeah. a big word. It, it makes us feel like we've earned degrees that we get when we have big words. So yes. yes. So um, some would read and say, well, the fact that Jesus twel- chose 12 men is evidence that he is appointing men to leadership roles. Um, now, people, the challenge to that would be a couple. First of all, they would say, because he is a man— Culturally, he's not going to call women to come be with him. A single man is not going to have women in his traveling band because there might be some appro- boundaries of appropriateness culturally for men and women, unmarried men and women traveling together and being in a band of, of, uh, of learners together. Even, even now that might, even now yeah, that might have issues. Might have questions on that, and yeah. so the second issue that some would raise is maybe... Culturally, um, they just weren't ready yet for Jesus to break down that boundary of having women in leadership. I, I the first one I I understand. The second one I struggle a little bit with because Jesus didn't seem to have problems challenging cultural norms. Right. If you've got the Son of God um, who's coming and ready to teach, obviously he's going to be sensitive to culture. But I don't see that stopping him from choosing the people he wanted to choose. So, um, so we have to at least deal with the fact that he chose twelve men. Now. That is not to say that there were not women in significant places in the life of Jesus. So a few examples in Luke chapter 8, we're told that it was women who were supporting even financially the ministry of Jesus and were were very important benefactors to his ministry. So I've often wondered for these three years, like, how did they eat? You
0: know, Jesus. Where's they get money for this? They're just yeah,
1: walking yeah. around teaching and doing ministry for three years. How are they? How are they being fed? We're actually told in Luke chapter eight that it is significant women who are helping to make this ministry happen. Um, in Luke chapter eight verse three, it lists some of the women who were going with the twelve and were helping to support the ministry. So we see women right alongside the twelve in Jesus's inner circle here. Okay. So we could exaggerate the point of the 12 as if it was only the 12 going around with Jesus. We're told in Luke 8, no, there were important women in, in some kind of leadership position um, helping this ministry happen. And then we're all, we also get a picture in Luke chapter 10. of um, we've, we've got this story of Martha and Mary um, that, that's familiar to most of us. And so Jesus is at the house. Uh, Martha is bustling around preparing things, and she gets angry at her sister right. because her sister is just sitting at Jesus' feet learning. It's a, it's a great little story, great little yeah. story and uh and I think the the message that we often take and it's a and a very appropriate one to do is to contract, contrast Mary's heart and Martha's heart and their priorities, and that's a right way to teach, but something we often miss is sitting at the feet of a rabbi is the position of a disciple oh interesting and so and Jesus affirms what uh Mary is doing there he says mary. Is choosing the right thing, and so Jesus is affirming Mary, her position as one of his followers and disciples, sitting at the feet of a rabbi and learning. And that was a controversial issue in the first century: could a woman be a disciple of a rabbi? Okay, and, and Jesus is affirming here: yes, Mary is taking the posture of a disciple at the feet of a rabbi, and she's choosing not to prioritize. Uh, you know, if we had some really. Old stereotypical tradition. We could picture all the men are sitting at the feet of the rabbi, and the women are in the next room and <laughs> preparing the food for them. Which is what Martha's doing. Which is what Martha's yeah. doing. And Jesus is saying, "No, actually,
0: Mary is where she belongs." And and he even says, "This is she's chosen the good part. She's, she's chosen doing a good the part. right thing." She he, he he brags on her for that. Absolutely. So here Jesus
1: is affirming Mary's place to be sitting at his feet, learning along with men. Okay, so that's a that's a powerful example. Now, when we move. After the life of Jesus, or after the main ministry of Jesus, I should say, we then get to his resurrection. And it is a significant thing that that when Jesus rises again and the tomb is empty, it is women who first come and discover the empty tomb. And the angels send uh, these women to go to the disciples with the news that Jesus has risen. So we have women here being the first ones to
0: deliver the message of the resurrection of Jesus so the greatest the greatest news in the history of the universe that the church is indeed to tell mm-hmm. the story that we teach the story that we tell the very first of that the first heralding of that story is coming from the women. Yes. Okay, that's I mean, that's. That's really, really significant.
1: It's a significant thing. And in the first century Jewish culture, the voice of these women would not have been valid witness in court of law. So there would have been enormous pressure probably to take them out of that account. To take them out of the account. And the gospel writers acknowledge their role to witness to the resurrection. Yeah, that is, that's, that is significant. It's yeah, a significant yeah. thing. Now, again, let's go back to the other side who did the angels send them to with the message right away? To the disciples. To the 12. Yeah. And so we're still getting the, the significance of the 12 acknowledged here. So that's what we get from the life of Jesus. And then we get to the book of Acts that gives us the story of the early church. And uh, and we'll see this kind of balance continue between men um, being in those significant Um, We would use the term apostles, these specially sent ones by Jesus, um, significant leadership roles, and women alongside them doing important things. So when we read the book of Acts, we start off seeing Peter as the the primary lead um, apostle in the early parts of the story. And so Peter's leading, uh, we see the ministry of the church, the gospel's going out, and then you get the story about a guy named Apollos, who is a really great Jewish teacher, and uh, he's but he but he's not very informed about the way of Jesus, and so he's he's teaching and preaching. And in Acts chapter eighteen, Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple, sit Apollos down to instruct him. And it's interesting. Normally, you would always put the man's name first, right? But yeah. every time we meet
0: Priscilla and Aquila, husband and wife, they always list Priscilla first. And here she is taking this really talented dude. Yep. And she's teaching, and her husband are teaching him about the maybe more accurate way of who Jesus is and what he's about. Yes, exactly.
1: And so now what you aren't seeing there is um, you aren't seeing Priscilla out instructing the large crowd. Um, you aren't seeing her uh, leading the conversation. You do see her, and many would want to point this out, uh, you see her taking Apollos aside with her husband and having a private conversation um, of, of instructing him and helping him grow. But we see Priscilla, and she, Priscilla and Aquila are going to show up again and again in the New Testament as right. very, a very significant couple. Um, we also have in Romans chapter 16, Phoebe is listed, at, listed as a deacon of the church. Um Deacon. In a deacon. Now, the word deacon is a word that means servant. It's a mascot It's a, for a team in the ACC. It yeah. is also that. Thank you for the cultural relevance yes. of the term deacon there and the name of uh, the archer's that's dog. What, that's what I think of. That's good. So, now, so the, the word, Phoebe is a deacon, and this word deacon means servant. And sometimes it just is a descriptor that means you are a servant of the church or a servant of Christ. But it also seems to be a kind of position in the church. Okay, And so um, it is a position under, as it, it, this is a little bit debated, but it seems like you have a, a lead position of elder responsible for oversight of the church. And then you have deacons that are given ministry tasks under the elders. And so it is, a, it is an important position of leadership in the church. And Phoebe is listed as a deacon. And she also is the one who delivers the letter of Romans that Paul wrote to the Romans. Okay. Now, here's the potential significance of that. When you're choosing somebody to entrust one of these very important documents to, you're choosing someone who has the stamp of approval from the, the sender to deliver the letter. And based on our understanding of, of the way these letters would be written and delivered, they also would be the one to answer any questions that the recipients have about the letter. So Paul is entrusting the document of the letter to the Romans into the hands of Phoebe. A woman, and that's a significant uh, level of trust that he's giving her to be the one to deliver
0: this message to the church in Rome. One, this can't be. Maybe we can't uh, overstate how significant this is because Paul's writing from Greece, this letter to the Romans, which is uh, kind of in Corinth, right in the middle of Greece, and this letter to be sent all the way across the, the sea into the capital city of Rome. This is his distillation of all the beauty of what Jesus has done in the gospel. This is Paul's magnum opus of that gospel news, and he sends it with Phoebe. And I think in, in researching for some of this uh, in the ancient culture, that was also the person, a lot of times the person who carried the letter was the person who would also read the letter. So here we have the first person potentially reading, teaching, and expounding and answering questions on the magnum opus of the gospel is Phoebe. Exactly. And so this is a, a
1: significant role uh, for for Phoebe to have as the leader of the church. And then w- one of the final examples of just what's happening is a woman named Hunius, who is mentioned in Romans 16, 7. And, and she said to be, and this phrase is difficult to translate, it's something like outstanding among the apostles. Now... You have a translation issue there. Uh, Two big issues to decide what that means. First of all, what does it mean that she's outstanding among the apostles? That could mean that she has an outstanding reputation among the apostles. So the apostles think really well of her. right? Or it could mean she is one of the apostles and she's outstanding. She's a good one. She's a really good one. So that's the first question to determine. The second one is what do we mean by apostles here? There are two kinds of apostles in the early church. There are... We we, oftentimes we talk about it with capital A or little a, lowercase a. And so um, what we mean by that is there are some apostles who have this um, leadership position of being personally appointed by Jesus to start churches and to be his representatives um, to set the standards for the church. And then the word literally just means someone who's sent out. And so the word apostle, apostle, what is that in Greek? Apostolos. Apostolos. Yeah, so we just carry that word straight over. And so you also, if you could have an apostle of a local church, meaning the church sent this person out. Um, like Kind of like we would probably use missionary would kind of be the word we would use here. So the second thing you have to decide is, are we talking about big A apostle? capital apostle, one of these um, big figures of, of representing Christ in the early church, or are we talking lowercase a, the a sent out one? So depending on where you go, you have a wide range of potential options of what Paul is saying about her. Either she's a great minister of the gospel, a servant of the church, and the apostles think well of her, all the way to another extreme of she's one of the apostles, and, and that's highly debated, but her, at some level, she's clearly a significant leader. So that sums up kind of the, the narrative examples, and at the end of the narrative examples, I think we would see a lot of tension, um, and, and maybe you see some in the, most of the primary leadership positions we're going to see men, but we're also going to see women in some very important leadership positions. So then, as we're trying to find boundaries on that, what do we mean? How do we apply that? That's where we really have to turn to the letters, where Paul explains, uh, Paul and the other writers explain what should be happening in the church, and they give direction for the church on these matters.
0: So it can't, it, we probably need to state and just just make it clear, uh, when you see the narrative section of this part of the New Testament, uh, I, maybe I just feel the need to say it, we have Women doing really significant things yeah. for Jesus and in the early church, stuff that's really, really important, heralding the news of the resurrection of Jesus. And so, uh, if somebody listening to this uh, feels this, this maybe the other side of the, this uh, conversation where women are are to always sort of be subject and quiet and yeah. over there, when the, in the narrative section of the scripture, there there have have some really important roles to play, and that should be. Uh, inspiring and that should be motivating. That should be something that we champion and see. And so just as we turn into the letters, we can't maybe not say that because I think it's really important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. We can rule out from the narrative portion a view of women sitting on the sidelines watching men lead. Correct. That that we can rule out. Now, if we want to get more clarity, it'd be a little bit like if you'd never seen basketball played and you just started watching basketball games and you were trying to understand the rules of the game you'd get really far just from observing the rules. But there might be some specifics that you can't put together just from watching the game played. Eventually, Mm -hmm. you're going to need to read the rule book. You're going to need to have somebody explain the rules. And that's a little bit what we get with the letters, Okay, is we get an explanation of what's happening. So let's turn to those texts now. So as we turn to the letters, you know Paul is the primary voice that we look at on these matters. And so um, a place to start is going to be Galatians. Okay. And uh, what's going on in Galatians is the, uh, there's a, a division happening between Jews and Gentiles in the church. And we don't have time to go into all of that, but essentially there's a debate over who has full membership and what does it take to have full membership in the people of God. And so Paul is addressing that issue. So that's the context of the statement he makes in Genesis 3 26 to 29. So Paul says this So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Okay, so there's the key principle. That's your status. Your status before Christ comes by your faith. Okay. And so then he makes this statement in verse 28 There is neither Jew nor Gentile. Neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise.
0: So everybody can get that status, no matter where you come from and yes. what your background is, or if you obey like Old Testament law. Yes. Okay.
1: So this is the the, the banner over gender in Christ. This is, the, I think, maybe the highest level principle, all are one in Christ. Okay. So now, what that leaves open-ended is what are the practical implications. It has to have practical implications, but how exactly do we work that out? Does that mean there is literally no distinction between men and women? Or does it mean they're all of equal standing in Christ? This is a salvation issue, all equal members of the body of Christ, but there still can be distinctions in leadership. Galatians doesn't answer that question. Um, we have to go further than Galatians to unpack that, but I think it is important to remember that whatever we read, it has to be read in light of Galatians three, that all are one in Christ, men
0: and women, right? It, okay. I mean, it it does seem like it's talking about status, like the status of being counted as a child of God yes. is available to all.
1: That is clearly the context. So okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I think you would have. I think you would have to stretch Paul really, really far to say that Galatians three is talking about leadership roles.
0: Yeah. Okay. That's, that's what I was getting at. I'm I'm most confused. It doesn't seem to be talking about that at all. That's, that's not what it's talking about, but people will go
1: here for that. And so I think it's important to, to acknowledge what Galatians three is saying and what it isn't saying. It's clearly saying we all have equal standing before Christ. Okay. Which is awesome. Which is awesome. And then some people would say, so therefore, what are the implications for leadership? And I don't think we're on our own to work that out. Um, I think the rest of the New Testament does weigh in on that. So we're going to work through some of the letters. Uh, 1 Corinthians is uh, important. There are a couple of key verses in 1 Corinthians that we need to look at. So the fir- one of the first ones comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In this section, Paul is addressing what happens when the church gathers. So what, what is an appropriate uh, ways to worship, ways to have our meetings together. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Garland, would you read verses 2
0: to 6 of 1 Corinthians 11? Okay, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 6. Oh, it's got the title of head, head coverings. Head coverings, okay. this is going to be fun. Oh, man, here we go. It says, uh, Paul writing to the church in Corinth, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the tradition's just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, let's pause right okay. there. I'm yeah. going to cut you off. <laughs> yeah, please <Okay>. do, actually. <laughs> so
1: that's important. This is the, the principle that seems to be leading out in this passage, um, and, and this idea of headship. Uh, would be the term we would we would use. So, Paul is describing headship here. He has this chain of headship. So, he says the head of every man is Christ, the head of a woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So, a couple of things that we have to think about and try to understand of what Paul's saying here. First, what does it mean to be the head of someone? Right. Um, and there's a lot of debate around this. Um, there are two basic meanings that we could we could use. Clearly, it's not literal. Okay, we're taught head the head, as in the head of a body, is being used as a metaphor. Okay, so what does that metaphor mean? Um, in when we read how um, first century Greek writers used head as a metaphor, there are basically two meanings that seem to emerge.
0: What's the Greek word here?
1: The Greek word is kephale. Oh, kephale. Isn't that like so great? This, that's a great one. It's a really good one. So, one meaning is um, the source. So, uh, a, an English comparison, we might talk about the headwaters of a river.
0: Right, okay. So, it's, yeah. it's
1: where it comes from. Um, so, that, that would be one meaning. So, we would say, if we're reading it that way, we might translate it. Uh, if we wanted to translate the metaphor, we would say, the source of every man is Christ. The source of the woman is man, and the source of Christ is God. Okay? Okay. Now, the other metaphor would would be to say that head means something like authority. Okay? And so, the authority of every man is Christ, the authority of the woman is man, and the authority over Christ is God. Okay, so those are the two basic readings. Um, we can debate those readings all day, and, and there's a case for each one, and I'm not entirely sure... That, um, that we have to make a decision to understand the point of First Corinthians 11. Because whether you mean source, whether it means source or authority, you're clearly, you're describing some kind of a relationship here mm-hmm. um, where A is related to B. And so something about the relationship between the man and the woman mirrors the relationship between the man and Christ and Christ and God. So that we could debate that all day, but there is some sort of relationship that Paul is describing here um, between men and women that mirrors a spiritual relationship. and it also is a relationship that he sees happening between Christ and the Father. okay So what we can determine from that is that uh, a, we know that Christ is not less valuable, our theology will tell us clearly, the son is co-equal with the father.
0: Yep, definitely.
1: Definitely co-equal. And so um, he's going to unpack this idea of what does it mean, what is the ap- implications practically of man being the head of the woman and how does that
0: play out. And that's what he's going to say in verses 4 to 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. This is bizarre. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Okay, make sense of this for me. I'm confused. Okay, so I don't know how exactly to make
1: sense of the head coverings issue. Oh, dang it. I know. There are, there are a lot of options. People proposed a lot of things trying to understand culturally what's going on. Um, and there are some really good options for understanding it. But here is the principle that I think we can take away from 1 Corinthians eleven two to 6 And that is that because of the relationship between the man and the woman, there are going to be some different ways they express their spirituality in the church. Okay. And so there are going to be some things that are appropriate for men to do because they're men and things that are appropriate for women to do because they're women. And, uh, and there's some different ideas of what the image of having your head covered or uncovered would mean uh, something. It has to do with something sexual. So a woman who did not wear a head covering was saying she was available and that would be really inappropriate for a wife to do um, almost equivalent oh, to a wife okay. intentionally taking her wedding ring off when she goes out in public. Um, it might be that kind of image. Other people has to do, think it has to do with something about um, a, the role of a priest and a priestess and what a woman might be signaling. Maybe it's a, a thing that she's trying to claim a certain priestly role. Um, and so there's, there's all kinds of different discussions. I, I, I don't know how to unpack all that for us, but I think what what we, what we need to see here in 1 Corinthians 11 is that Paul seems to clearly be saying that there's a relationship that is God-ordained between men and women. And that has implications. Um, the, the complementarian position would take the headship of the man or the woman to, to speak to authority. That God has placed men in a kind of, and we've talked in earlier podcast about struggling with the word authority, and if, if that's even the appropriate word, but I'm going to go with the word leadership. That, that God has given a leadership role to men, and that that leadership role should be expressed in the local church in different ways. Okay. Now, um, further in, uh, in verse, chapter 14, we get a little bit more about, the, about men and
0: women in the local church. So before, we, before we turn there, is it worth noting, and maybe we just gloss over this too quickly, that here in ver- chapter 11, verse 4 and 5, women, it seems like women are praying and prophesying. Absolutely. Okay, so that's,
1: uh, that's one thing to notice is that they are both doing the same activity, it's talking about men praying and prophesying and women praying and prophesying. Okay. Now, to talk about what prophesying means is beyond the scope of what we can do here. Right. But it is clearly a speaking activity in the local church that women and men, men are and both
0: women. are both doing. Okay. Absolutely. So they are both doing the same activity, but something about the way they go about it needs to be different. Maybe I've always lost that because I just get distracted with yeah, the head sure. covering thing. And that, that, is, that is sitting there. like it's there's significant. Here, okay, okay. So, yeah, absolutely. So where am I going now? Chapter so now, 14? Chap,
1: uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 29 to 35.
0: Two or three prophets should speak, and the other should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Continue. Keep going, yep. yep. Okay, here we Now, I know. women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. So what? Now, now I'm confused because we just a couple, like that was like one page turn, and they were speaking. Right. So what? What am I supposed to make of this? Okay.
1: So that this there's there's tension between First Corinthians 11 and First Corinthians 14, um, and. The idea, and this is where I think the the cultural sensitivity is going to come in, um, very heavily, and it's going to make a lot of us reading this feel uncomfortable. Okay. Um, Any time you hear the words "women should be silent," right. That is going to conjure all kinds of feelings of abuse and oppression um, and uncomfortable things like I had a hard time reading it yeah. yes yeah, I was like this this feels uncomfortable just to, to read out loud and so I think at this point I think it's appropriate to hit pause and think about the character of our God and the nature of the scriptures and so to remember uh, in faith for those of us who are are people who place our faith in Jesus in the God of the scriptures and the scriptures he's given that God is not an oppressive God. We need to remember what we read in Galatians 3, that men and women are one in Christ. So we want to dig in in faith that 1 Corinthians 14 does not contradict Galatians 3. Right. So whatever this means, it is not denying the value of women um, and and that there are going to be answers that are going to help us understand this. And then beyond that, we, we read this phrase, they are not allowed to speak, but, as you pointed out in First Corinthians eleven, they are actually they're speaking they're speaking, they're yeah. prophesying and praying in the church, and they're
0: encouraged to do so in a certain way. I'm kind of I think I'm getting why we have to have this full discussion yes. because like this like reading just this particular section of chapter fourteen, which I think is often how this comes across, makes sense of First Corinthians 14 for me. Now, do a, do a dance and make sense of this, Yes, but doing, doing all this due diligence, going through all this spade work, it kind of gives a more multifaceted picture.
1: Hopefully so, okay. because we are all of these letters are speaking to and addressing particular situations. So to lift one paragraph out of context and to try to, to, to draw that as if that is the only thing for the whole church would be very inappropriate. So we need to understand when Paul says women are to remain silent, he must be addressing the particular situation in chapter 14 because in chapter 11, he's just instructing them on how to speak when they're praying and prophesying.
0: Is it worth noting that I have underlined here just a different, in my own Bible, for whatever reason, other people right above this, I'm assuming men groups are mm-hmm. told to remain silent. Absolutely. So okay. if
1: it's not your turn to speak prophesying, remain silent. So what we need to hear is, I think, first of all, as you, I think that's very worthy of noting, this is not remain silent all the time. Okay. This is in this situation, it's not time for for this person to speak. Okay. Um, it's I mean, I think a little bit of an elementary classroom when the teacher has the beanbag that the person who's allowed to talk holds on to, and so only the person holding the bag speaks. Everyone else remains silent. It's not your turn to talk. Okay. That's the that idea. sounds different. Yeah, it's that does very sound different. different. Okay. That's what Paul's doing here is, hey, when this is happening, let that person speak. Everybody else stays quiet. When this happens, let this other person speak. Everybody else remains silent. Okay. He's giving an order and a structure to a church service. So he's talked about speaking in tongues and he's talking about yep.
0: prophesying. Now he gets to this. So what, what is the situation? So
1: here's the situation that Paul seems to be addressing in First Corinthians 14. When people are prophesying, you should weigh carefully what's being said. And the idea seems to be that Paul is talking about how to assess what people are saying in the church. Okay, and so when somebody stands up and shares something in church, you don't just take that as the word of God right away. Okay, the scriptures we take as the word of God, but when somebody stands up and shares that, he's saying you have to weigh and consider what they're saying. Now, he seems to be saying that. That role of weighing and considering, the men should do. Okay, This is not time for the women to weigh in on what's being said here. Now, the question is, why would Paul say that? Okay, There's a couple different options. One would be that that role of weighing and considering is for the elders of the church to do. And that would be maybe reflected by the complementarian position? Exactly. So that would be a way of explaining this, is that the men are in that weighing and considering role. And so women are sharing, they're prophesying, they're praying. And when it's time to weigh in on, wait, is what was just shared in line with our church's beliefs, that that is a role, that is time for the male elders to step in? Okay. So that would be one way to read it. Okay. Another way to read it, because it then goes to um, asking your husband at home, some people have suggested the problem here is that what's happened is a husband has just shared something, and the wife is going to object to what the husband has said and maybe even uh, attack his character. And so they're picturing a, a domestic dispute becoming a church
0: dispute. Uh, This seems like we, uh, maybe we just have to change our, you keep saying when the church or in the church, and the church, quote unquote, of Corinth, we're not talking giant building with face mics. We're talking, you know, uh, an atrium of a Roman house, a Greek house, and maybe a dozen people, yeah. a couple dozen people it, it would and look that's a lot, it. it. It would look a lot okay. more like what we would call a home
1: group or a okay. small group. Okay, yeah. okay, that's that's helpful. So some people read this as basically maybe there's a a fight between a husband and wife taking place at home and the the wife chooses to use the church gathering as an as a, platform. An opera, as a okay. platform to to air this fight publicly. It's like a
0: it's like a marital dispute. It's brought, a marital okay, dispute yeah.
1: brought out into the open. And what the what Paul on this reading, what Paul's saying is, hey, that's really dishonoring of the marriage. Um, y'all need you need to discuss and have your marital fights in appropriate avenues. Okay, and so don't use the public worship gathering as a place to have a marital fight. Okay, um, and and so that that is another reading of what's happening here. Another one is that um, when you talk about this issue of weighing prophecies and and trying to read it out, uh, one of the issues is that, we talked about this earlier, women had not been able to sit under rabbis and be taught. So one of the suggestions is, is that in this very young church, women are still being educated on the scriptures. Their men have this education, and women are being trained. And so they're saying, hey, when it comes to the, uh, the big weighing of prophecy discussions, people who have the training need to speak in to that, and because women are still being educated in the church in this new era, they should wait at this point and talk to their husbands at home. On this reading of the text, then that command would be just for this time period when women have not yet had available to them the education that the men have, and they would envision as time progresses, and women do have education, then women would absolutely speak into the situation. Okay, so those are the different potential readings. Uh, there, there are more out there. Those are some of the major ones, uh, but that that is a, a significant reading. of What's happening in First Corinthians fourteen? So it's not what I think we can say with confidence is it's not women should be silent
0: in church. Period. Yeah, that 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 is really instructive because because when you first read, it, that's what it just sounds like, but it. It's definitely more complicated than that. Maybe we, we just have to do a little more work to get that complication. Yes. It makes it a little more murky. More um, murky. Okay. 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 So now we come next to what Paul
1: addresses in his letter to Timothy. And so in, in the letter to Timothy, what Paul is doing is he's writing to Timothy, and it's really about how to lead a church. And so Paul is giving Timothy advice, and, uh, and and so that's where some of our really important passages come out. One of them comes out in First Timothy two eleven to fifteen.
0: Um, Garland, would you be willing to read First Timothy two eleven? Yeah, let me read it. Uh, this is NIV. It says, "A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man." She must be quiet. Keep going? Yeah, keep going. For for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. And now my brain just turned off because I have no idea what's going on, and (laughs) I'm, I'm now like frustrated and confused. Okay, so let's walk through this
1: passage a little bit. Now, um, the first thing we start with, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I was in a conversation recently, and and, and somebody pointed out a, a revolutionary positive side of that verse that we often ignore because we look at quietness and full submission and ignore the fact that Paul's in commanding women to learn. Okay, So that's, that's something that's actually really, really positive here, is that the assumption is that women are studying scriptures and learning in the church. So, that's the positive side. Um, now, the, the restriction is this idea of learning in quietness and full submission, and, and we see a contrast between verses 11 and 12. A woman should learn in quietness and submission, but I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. And so, uh, that's, that's what's being laid out here. Paul gives this restriction in verse 12 to the activity that's going on in the church at Ephesus. He says he does not permit a woman to do two things. The first one is to teach. The Greek word there is didasko. Didasko. Didasco. It's a fun one.
0: Like didactic. Yeah, like didactic. Like, it's okay. where we get that idea of didactic. Teaching. Yeah, okay.
1: So he says, I don't permit a woman to teach. And he also, nor does he permit a woman, and the word is to, the, the translation is to assume authority over a man. Okay. Now, there is a clear restriction that Paul is putting in place here on, uh, and, and there's a debate grammatically, are these two different activities? One of them is teaching, the other is assuming authority over a man, or is, are these two describing one activity and giving more clarity? Is it teaching in such a way as to take authority over a man? Right. I can say the difference. There's, there's a, there's a difference there. Um, and so the, uh, the grammar, there's people that make really strong arguments on either side of that. That's, that's inconclusive. So what seems clear is that Paul is restricting an activity of women that would have them taking authority from men. Is that from the second word? What's this word? Yeah, so this word is authenteo. 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 And it, here's what's really tricky about this word. It's the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. That's a problem? That's a problem because we can't go to other verses to get clarity on what Paul means here. Right. So there's another word, exousia, that normally means authority. And it's the kind of flat, neutral word for having authority over someone.
0: And we talked about that one in in episode 20.
1: I remember that. Exactly. So Paul could have grabbed that word and it would have... Apparently fit really well, but instead he chose this kind of this very unique word in the New Testament. Now, people have done studies on this word outside of the uh, outside of the New Testament in other Greek literature, and it has a pretty wide range of meaning. Um, it can mean something as simple as what's said here to assume authority over someone to be someone's master or leader. But I'm betting it's trickier than it's that. It's trickier than that. The word can go as far as a kind of abuse. Um, even so far as that word root in other literature, it's a little bit later, but can mean to murder someone. Yeah. Okay. So we have a range of meaning all the way from a pretty standard to be, to have authority over someone, to take authority over someone all the way to abuse someone to the point of murder.
0: That's, that's a big gap.
1: It's <laughs> a big gap. So the question is, how do we determine what determine what it means? Um, and context is, is, has to be the answer. Anytime um, you have you have a, a word um, that has a range of meanings. You don't just go pick the meaning you like best or that fits your case. You try to look at it in context. So there's some grammatical points here. One of them is, um, and uh, Andreas Kostenberger has done some great work on the grammar of this, and he shows that when two words are connected by the little word here, the or, in the Greek here, um, the two verbs are connected by the or, they typically have the same kind of weight. So they're either both positive or both negative. Okay, So he argues that um, if, if teaching is a good activity, then the assuming authority also would be a good activity. Um, and, so, and so he argues that it, it's unlikely that the first one means teaching and the second one means abusing right. in the grammar. So probably the, the meaning here as it's translated in the IV is probably pretty good. Um, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume or take authority over a man. So, Paul is giving a restriction here on what women are to do in the local church. And then he explains why in verse 13. Verse 13 is his example or illustration that justifies why he would give that command. It says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived, it was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness
0: with propriety. Yeah, but I thought Adam was equally there. Don't we hold Adam responsible for this, too? Uh, This seems very unfair, because uh, just how I've always heard that Genesis account.
1: So, uh, the New Testament is is pretty careful to be balanced in, in this. There are four references to the responsibility of sin happening in the garden in the New Testament. Two of them put the responsibility on Adam as the one who sinned. Two of them put the responsibility on Eve as the one who sinned. Oh, that's
0: really that's really cool. So, it's terrible but cool.
1: It's terrible but it, it, the New Testament puts weight and responsibility on both Adam and Eve. Okay. Yep. It, it does not say, "Oh, Eve sinned and poor Adam was brought along with him." It also doesn't say Adam was responsible and Eve didn't have any, you know, she couldn't have made a good decision on her own. It was really Adam. Uh, the new Testament sees them both as responsible agents who both chose to sin. Okay. So, um, what, what we see happening in 13 to 15, a couple observations. One, um, Paul is grounding the reason for his command in Genesis one, two, and three. Okay. So, what, what many complementarians would point out is that this shows that what Paul is doing in verse 12, he sees going all the way back to the beginning of humanity. So, he sees this as applying to all humans. If If he sees his reason for the restriction in verse 12 as rooted in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, then he does see it would seem reasonable to think he assumes that this is something about how God designed men and women to be okay now what's tricky about it is in verse thirteen he refers to creation Genesis one and two in verse fourteen he refers to the fall what happened in sin so you would ask the question is the restriction because of God's design or is it because of human brokenness well Paul refers to both design and brokenness in mm-hmm. verses thirteen and fourteen
0: it's a little little tricky
1: little tricky now verse 15 is complicated what does it mean that women will be saved through childbearing uh, that goes far further than we can really go in this podcast There's a couple of different explanations um, of what he can what he could be talking about there all the way from one being um, the fear in in Ephesus uh, childbearing is dangerous people die that's true all throughout the ancient world and they would appeal to Artemis to protect
0: them through childbearing. Artemis must be the goddess Thank who's you, in yeah. charge of that territory. Yeah, th- uh,
1: the Ephesus is an Artemis city, so they worship Artemis. They would appeal, women would appeal to Artemis at, to protect them, to keep them safe. So some people think that what what Paul's saying is, Artemis is not going to keep you safe, God's going to keep you safe. Um, there are other options, such as um, that women will be saved through childbearing, specifically a woman bearing a child namely mary bearing bearing christ so paul's saying hey unless you think that what i'm saying is women aren't significant remember mary mary was the one who bore the christ child okay so that would be another option a third option would be that he's distinguishing between different important roles and he would say just like there is a role that men have in being this in this leadership role in the church there's important roles that women have in bearing children, and both are important, and we're not going to place one above the other. There's a few different options there. Um, it, it's difficult to determine exactly what's going on, but let me try to just pull back, because I think 1 Corinthians two eleven to 15 is one of the crucial passages. 1 Timothy? I'm sorry, 1 Timothy, okay, okay. yes. yeah. 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 15 is crucial. Let me try to summarize. Paul clearly places a restriction here on, on women teaching and taking authority from men in the Ephesus church. The question we have to wrestle with was, is this a for all time principle? Or was there something particular happening in Ephesus that led Paul to give this restriction only at that time, and it would not apply to all churches? Okay. Now, Uh, here would be the for and against. There's a lot. We've mentioned Artemis. There was a lot going on in in Ephesus around women worshiping Artemis and even seeing Artemis as a female deity that would lead them to try to take authority
0: from men. So it's almost like in this city called Ephesus, there is a group of women who are used to being in power. They're used to wielding their... Their, their cult authority, uh-huh. their religious authority here in this city, and some of them might have made their way into the church and become followers of Jesus, and they're yes. having a hard time letting that go? Is that-, that, that would be the
1: idea. Okay. And so on this, um, on this reading, Paul would be putting a restriction down. A woman may not teach and take authority over a man the way these Artemis women are doing. Therefore, I don't permit women to teach because they're doing this. So people who would read that way, they could argue Paul only said that because of the Artemis cult. And in a culture where that's not a problem, women trying to put men down, we wouldn't need to have this restriction. This was a special restriction for this situation.
0: And maybe that "authenteo" word would Mm -hmm. be... Instructive here, that yes. that kind of usurping authority or domi- being domineering, yes. is kind of what he's okay. Okay, now I'm tracking with you. The counter to that would be uh, a couple of things. One, uh,
1: some scholars have, have suggested Paul seems to be going for some overkill here. If that's what he's doing, if the problem is particularly some women being abusive, why does he not permit all women? Why does he permit uh, not permit all women to teach? Why does he restrict? Let me say it the other way. Why does he restrict all women from teaching? That right. that seems like overkill. If that's all he's trying so to you do, you got
0: this this group of women that are, uh, you know, especially bad. Why does yep. he then punish? It seems or take this thing to all of them. Yeah, that that seems like overkill. Okay, I so get it. I that
1: get would it. be the response there. Uh, the other point is, man, it, it, many would say it's really dangerous to take a command that we feel uncomfortable with, and without any indication in the text that it is restricted to a certain situation to then bring something outside in and restrict it when we're uncomfortable. Like a slippery slope. It, it seems yeah. like a slippery slope. Man, are we just going to, every command we don't feel comfortable with, are we going to find a cultural reason that it applied to? The fact is all scripture applies to a cultural situation. And, um, and we need to be careful. Uh, Carson uses, uses the term domesticating the text. We need to be careful that we don't go, man, this text seems really edgy. Really uncomfortable. Let's just make it a little softer, right. um, so we're more comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. And so, at the straightforward Paul, at the straightforward reason, Paul is clearly putting a restriction on women teaching and, and taking authority here. And so, we got to decide what's the context of that and how do we understand what he's doing. Um, one last passage to look at uh, before we try to wrap this up is First Timothy three. 1 to 13. Uh, we probably don't need to read the whole thing. It's the qualifications for an overseer or an elder and the qualifications for a, a, a deacon. Garland, would you just read 1 Timothy
0: 3 1 to 2? Yeah, it says, here is, a, here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Stop there? Yeah, that's great. That's great. So, um, Paul
1: addresses the task of overseer, and one of the qualifications of this overseer is that he must be faithful to his wife. Now, later on, when Paul addresses deacon, which is a servant role under overseer, he addresses both men and the wives, the women. So, most complementarians would argue that this shows us that the elders are only men because he addresses specifically men when he talks about elders, but he addresses men and women when he talks to deacons. So
0: elder is the overseer in this elder's translation? The over, okay. Yes,
1: elder overseer. Um, and so they would see this as restricting the elder overseer role to men. Um, there are some responses that some would give to that, such as uh, some would say that um, that Paul only talks about faithfulness to wives because it was common for men to not be faithful to wives versus Wives' faith, unfaithfulness to men wasn't as much of a problem, so he's addressing that particular problem there. Um, and so, on the whole, what do we do with all
0: this? Yeah, this is, this is a lot.
1: It's a lot. It's a lot to take in. Um, so here's what I would say. Uh, first of all, it's not easy. So anyone who paints this debate as as easy, black and white, obvious, I think is probably not being fair to the other side. Um, people who want to make an egalitarian argument that there is no distinction between men and women in leadership, they have arguments that are really good and really valid. Um, And people who want to make a complementarian argument, uh, they have arguments that are really good and really valid. And so I think the first thing I would say is we need to be kind and gracious to each other. Right, and not assume whatever side you land on on this issue. Don't assume that the other side. You know, I, I get I get really frustrated when people say things like, "You only read the passage that way because fill in the blank." Right, you only read it that way because you're a man. You only read it that way because you're a woman. Um, I think that's that that's not not generous and kind to of the other side. Um, I, some of my friends who are the strongest complementarians are women, and some of my friends who are strongest egalitarian are men. So it's not as if all men read the text one way and all women read it the other way. Um, it's also not true that um, you can follow who reads the text one way based on how much they love Jesus or believe the
0: Bible. Right. So, y'all, y'all you're, yeah, you're just not a real Bible believing Jesus follower. Yes. Yeah. Real
1: Bible believing Jesus followers read the text both ways. Okay. So, um, what do we do going forward? I think there's some things we can all agree on, which is that in Christ, all are one men and women, equal of value um, before Christ. I think we could also all agree that uh, women have significant roles of ministry and leadership in the church. That is clearly laid out from the narrative examples, that women uh, have important things to do. We can also agree that women are not to be completely silent in the churches, that women have speaking roles, that we need to hear the voices of women in our church. Those are things I I hope we can all agree on. Um, Based on our earlier discussion of authority, I think we can all agree that whoever is in a leadership position of the church is to be in a servant posture of care. So wherever you fall, if leading in the church becomes a way of asserting your value and significance you've power. or power, yeah. um, you've missed the point of leadership in the church. Mm-hmm. This and that's is not, where
0: we frequently go first is authority means power. Authority. That's just yep. not how the New Testament
1: Leadership is equals authority. Authority equals power. So whoever, whoever has leadership has significance mm-hmm. and power. Um, and that's to misunderstand leadership in the church entirely. Uh, And so leadership should not be threatening. And if leadership is threatening to someone's dignity, you have failed leadership every time. Mm -hmm. So now when we come to the question of, are there speaking roles and leadership roles reserved for men? um, I think what we can say is this, both sides have good arguments and at fellowship, we do take the complementarian position, which means we see um, the elder leadership role, of of leadership for the church and the primary teaching role of teaching the church's doctrine as reserved for men. Uh, the reason that that our church has landed there is that when we've looked at these passages, um, the the cultural arguments that that some throw up don't seem to negate the restrictions that Paul does lay down, and so um, our church has taken the position that that 1 Timothy two eleven to 15 is normative for the church today, that there's nothing in that passage that says it has an expiration date on it, um, nothing that says this only applied to a certain situation, and that, um, that we take the position that men carry the burden and responsibility of elder leadership and teaching the scriptures for the whole church. That doesn't mean women aren't gifted teachers and shouldn't teach. It is simply saying that they should teach in contexts where they're teaching other women, um, but that 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 lead teaching role over the whole congregation belongs to men in the local church. Okay. And so wherever you fall on that, um, that is, I I think we can have uh, grace for each other and seek Christ together as we value the gifts, as we value the voices of men and women at the table, and and listen well, and try to submit. And what I would say is that let us all come to a place of willingness and humility to submit to the Word of God. Um, even if that Word of God makes us uncomfortable at times. Um, right. it, my assumption is everyone listening to this probably felt uncomfortable at some point in this. No, I felt I uncomfortable. Um, and yet sometimes if God's word is truly, if he is truly Lord, then he has the right to make us uncomfortable. And we have faith that his way is better, even if we don't understand it. And so we want to press into that and seek to grow. And hopefully this is the starting point to a conversation uh, that we'll all continue in as we move forward.
0: Well, holy smokes, this has been a whirlwind. And uh, this has been a a multiple part conversation that we've been having on these topics, and uh, as always, with Out of Curiosity, if you have follow up questions, uh, if you've got people that are wrestling through this on their own, uh, please forward this to them. Um, and we hope that this, like as Nick just said, is is creating a discussion that's really needed and really important. And uh, so, for for going all the way through here with us on this one, we just want to say thanks for listening and thanks for joining us on Out of Curiosity. Thank you for listening to Out of Curiosity as we discussed what the Bible says about women leading in the church. For further study, we recommend looking in Scripture at Genesis chapters 2 and 3, Galatians 3, 27 to 29, and 1 Timothy 2, 9 to three thirteen. And we also recommend the books Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles by Kathy Keller and Two Views on Women in Ministry, edited by Gundry and Beck. If you want to send in a question or contact us, go to OOCuriosity.com and follow us on Instagram at OOCuriosity. Be sure to subscribe to keep up with future episodes.